Technology is not going to save us. Our computers, our tools, our machines are not enough. We have to rely on our intuition, our true being. Isn't that an affront to reason, I said? And aren't we already beating a hasty retreat from reason as it is? That's not what the hero's journey is about. It's not to deny reason. To the contrary, by overcoming the dark passions, the hero symbolizes our ability to control the irrational savage within us. Campbell had lamented on our other occasions, our failure to admit within ourselves the carnivorous, lecherous fever that is endemic to human nature. Hello. Hey, Nat. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome, everyone, to this episode of Made You Think. And as you can probably tell from the title, today we are discussing The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. Uh, And The Power of Myth, so it's an interesting book for anyone who hasn't read it in that it's written as a dialogue because it's based on a series of interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell during 1985 and 1986. And they were hanging out at the Skywalker Ranch and the Museum of Natural History in New York. Pretty cool places to hang out. Great places. Yeah. We should should do our podcasts in places like that. (laughs) Well, one of those is much closer than the other. That's true. Yeah. We'll just show up at the museum and see if they'll they'll let us hang out. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But so if anyone has any contacts that wants to exactly natural history museum. (laughs) But the book is basically all about Campbell's philosophy around mythology. So Joseph Campbell was a really famous mythologist and professor at Sarah Lawrence, and he influenced a lot of I guess, creators like George Lucas in his time with all of his work on mythology and especially around the hero's journey. And I know that one in particular, Lucas really modeled Star Wars after. And they talk about Star Wars a lot in this conversation, which is pretty cool. And the whole conversation centers around Campbell's theories and research and ideas of mythology and how it influences our lives and where we see it and influences our stories. And I think for me reading it, What made it really interesting and made it a good potential episode was how you see each of these themes play out in our lives, where you have these really old mythological tales, right? Some of them 6,000 years old, and the ideas in them are still really pervasive. They still come up in our modern stories and in our lives. And Campbell's whole theory around how we can use mythology to influence our decisions and help us know how to behave and what to do is really like interesting. And I'd never thought about it that yeah. much before. Aha, uh-huh, never thought about it. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> but, and I think that in seeing it and especially seeing how he criticizes the lack of mythology in modern life, how we've lost a lot of that tradition, especially as a very secular nation now, there is some value to bringing that mythology back into our lives. For sure. Yeah. And I think, um, and I'm sure we'll get more into this and I'm still searching for the right way to describe this because a lot of what I think myth is describing is in a lot of ways, things that might not be, you know, might not lend themselves so easily to words. I almost view it like these stories connect with us on such a kind of visceral level because they're describing something about reality. That's like, maybe if we could zoom out from the individual human experience is something that we all kind of go through. It's like kind of the thing about the hero's journey or some of the other, you know, puberty rights and things that he's talking about. It's like things that most of us as humans, you know, at least I think he focuses a lot on kind of the male experience as well. And, you know, I would say that got connected a lot to that. And actually something that's come up recently on uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast, which highly recommend you guys look at the biblical series that he's been doing because regardless of any of SJW stuff that he's talked about, his biblical series is, is fascinating. It's right on this topic of myth. One thing he's actually referred to a lot is Harry Potter. 
and how Harry Potter, like he doesn't know if J.K. Rowling did any kind of research into mythology, if she's read a lot of mythology, but he was saying it's like she's playing on so many classic themes, like even what's the creature in the Chamber of Secrets, the one that is below Basilisk. Yeah, the Basilisk, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's like he's like she's playing on the dragon metaphor there. The dragon is guarding a treasure and a virgin in that, right? It's like classic mythology theme that she's playing on. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if Joseph Campbell influenced her at all or she's read any of his stuff. But again, that story has connected with millions and millions of people. And there's something it's connecting to. And that's one of the interesting powers of mythology is that compared to just raw philosophy or pure nonfiction is that those stories can stick with you so much easier. So it's so much easier, especially with children or just for ourselves to remember the gist of a myth, right? It's really easy to remember like the fox and the sour grapes, yeah. right? That's very easy. But remembering like uh, what would the cognitive bias there be? I guess kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Like the, the specific biases underlying the lesson there are kind of harder to remember specifically, but yeah. that lesson of- You'll oh, remember the lesson. You might not remember the abstract concept. And actually tangent time, I think <laughs> we're only a few minutes in and we're already tangent number one. That's okay. That's why you guys listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if some of it has to do with a lot of these things were oral traditions before they were written down. And even for the person telling the story, it would be a lot easier to remember- the sour grape story as opposed to the concept of cognitive dissonance and an essay about cognitive dissonance. Oh, definitely. Um, when you have to carry everything around in your head, exactly. the myths are going to stick. And there's probably something hardwired in us. I mean, I know there's some arguments that there is like a language hardwiring in humans, right? And part of that is probably this oral tradition and communication through mythology, right? It's part of how we transmit knowledge. And I imagine that pre-writing, there really wasn't much, I guess, what we now call long-form nonfiction being transmitted around. It's so much harder to keep in your head, right? It's got bad, I guess you call it like compression, right? Yeah. It's not easy to remember. And so if you can really dive into mythology and embrace it and understand it, as Campbell's talking about here, it can really benefit your life and help you understand all these situations you're in, right? Where he really says that we're each going through our own hero journey of sorts. And all of these stories help us figure out what to do in those situations. Yeah. So I think we can probably just jump into the first chapter here. It's broken out by, what is it, eight chapters or so? And each one has a different theme about how myth plays into our lives. And so this first one is about myth in the modern world. And I'll just read the quotation it opens up with. This is from Campbell. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonance within our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. And there's, I mean, there's something really to this, right? Yeah. Where a lot of what people are searching for in their expressed desires, money, fame, power, it's not really about that. It's about the secondary effect, the feeling that we think that will bring us. And then a lot of the power in myths that he's getting into here is that they kind of help us shape that pursuit, right? We want to feel alive and it's easy to get driven by these, I guess, easy to quantify things that we can go after. Yeah. And Campbell's saying mythology is powerful and how it can steer us towards better desires in a certain way of life. Yeah. And I think it's also just really interesting that like taking a step back, it's someone may see like, oh, myths, these are fairy tales. These are like stories of supernatural beings and, you know, kind of equated on the level of watching a movie or reading a novel or something. At least from what I've read of mythology, it seems to be a lot deeper than that. And 
I also, through reading mythology, I think I feel like I've gotten a little more respect for people who lived long, long time ago. You know, I think it's easy to look at these stories and think like, you know, who are these unsophisticated people that believed in like the fire God and the sun God and these kind of things. And if you look at the concepts that are being outlined in these myths, what you're the one we were just talking about with the sour grapes and cognitive dissonance, like that is a profound concept that is amazing that people knew that thousands of years ago and that Um, they really recognized it and yeah they recognized it and i think like these myths probably were essential to the survival of the people that knew them like i think there was a lot to them that was kind of they were carrying this knowledge around in their head like you couldn't just take out your phone and google something in sapiens by yuval noah harari he talks about that as one of the theories for why sapiens homo sapiens could have dominated compared to neanderthals and others is that we may have been the first to develop this shared mythology And I think he uses that word myth specifically, and he's talking about not just dragons, but also democracy and human rights and all of that, which are obviously they don't have a money money is a great one, right? A specific existence in the real world. There's a shared belief in it. And that's some of the value of these old stories, too, is that if you have this mythology you can live your life around, then it's helping guide you and it's helping society organize. And I think that's part of what Campbell's getting to here, where there's huge value in believing in some of these things, even if they don't have a basis in reality and not belief in the what we might think of as like a Abrahamic, you know, belief in Christ, but a belief in that there is value to this story. So one example of that shared mythology he gets into that I thought was really interesting and hadn't thought of much before was puberty rights. So I guess a bit of background. Uh, I went to Africa with my family five years ago, six years ago, and we got to visit one of the native villages, like the Maasai tribe people. Oh, nice. Right. And they were talking about some of their puberty rights. And I think it's really tempting. Okay, this is hard, right? Because so they do male and female circumcision at puberty. So female circumcision is fucked up in like any context. And male circumcision at puberty is like pretty gnarly too. But Campbell talks about that in particular, where he's saying that when men have a ceremony of going from boyhood to adulthood, you know, it creates that clear demarcation. And we've lost a lot of that, particularly, or at least partially for men, because women still have that like clear delineation when they start going through puberty. Men don't have the same like shifting, right? Women have that sudden realization, you know, oh, I'm a woman now. You actually hear a lot of women complaining about that these days where they say there's a bunch of man boys running around. Yeah, there's a lot of boys, but no men. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're totally onto something there. I mean, I'm not saying the solution is (laughs) circumcision (laughs) circumcision at at 13. Yeah. Where you're not allowed to cry. Yeah. Um, But I think this concept that they, what they were trying to do, it seems at least from what Campbell is saying is create this moment where you are no longer your mother's son. You are a man now. Well, and also having to earn it because the other thing they do is that when you turn 18 or so, you have to go kill a lion on your own. Oh, wow. And I think you can't use rifles. I think you have to just like take a spear and Mm -hmm. knives and whatever. And you know, that's pretty intense, right? If you make it, when you come back, you're a man now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, I don't think any of us it. could say we've killed a lion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but you compare that to the U.S., right, where you've got people 22, 24, still living off their parents, like expecting to be taken care of, that right of initiation to adulthood is largely gone. Even like helicopter parenting, kids in college, right? It's crazy. Yeah. And it really we're infantiles. After we're after college, too. <laughs> and after, after college, college. Yeah. yeah. And it really infantilizes 
people. I think it's a word. Uh, <laughs> so th this notion of creating like a ritual around becoming an adult, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And it was a, something society was doing for them. Whereas I think today it's on either the parents or the children to recognize this. Yeah. And this is, I think, a good takeaway from the book as well. You know, it's on both sides, but at least one side yeah. to kind of recognize that you can't kind of maintain that same relationship forever. And like, that's not healthy yeah. to maintain it that way. Exactly. You're stifling growth for the yeah. boy. Yeah. And this applies to women too. It applies obviously. to women too. Yeah. But I think, as you said, like life circumstances tend to almost force women to girls to become women a little earlier. Yeah. And another place he brings this in is marriage, where he talks about how traditionally marriage had all of this mythology and ceremony around it. And especially in secular society, we've lost a lot of that. It's more love based or transactional, and it's lost some of that really powerful, I guess, myth to it of you're taking these two souls and joining them into one. Yeah. He uses the example of Indian weddings I love. Yeah. Where you, <laughs> the multi-day. Exactly. Like, yeah. You're spending three days, there's an elephant. Yeah. Like, you, at the end of that, you know this is serious. You're yeah. committed. And even with some of the like arranged marriage stuff, recognizing that arranged marriages have the higher success rate than what we would now call like love-based marriages in terms of divorce, right? Yeah. Arranged marriages typically have a lower divorce rate. And part of that might be that there is this stronger mythology behind marriage in the societies where arranged marriages still happen in that it's much more of an event this like bonding of two souls together for life whereas maybe in the u.s it's more like hey you know we like each other let's do this yeah. thing i would say like it's and it's tough to sort out these two feelings from each other i don't know if it's really possible even to do it or maybe i've never been able to do it Which but this know? lust versus love feeling right it's like i mean he talks about this in the book as well it's like many things that we attribute today to love possibly our lust like what he's talking about when he says marriage is like this thing that's for life it's kind of like uh, i forget the exact words he uses for it but it's like not a temporary kind of thing whatsoever and there's no expectation that it will be temporary like there's no way out in his view of marriage yeah because he's got a whole another chapter on this yeah. too tales of love and marriage yeah. and we can sort of swoop into there now because yeah. you yeah. mentioned the lust versus love thing yeah. and yeah. he he mentions that in the beginning too that if you look back some 2000 3000 years there wasn't the what we would now think of as a more right this romantic love that wasn't really discussed in the same way it was today or it is today whereas you did have eros which was this lust sexual yeah. desire and then obviously with the abrahamic religions you introduce uh what is it agape right love of the neighbor and it's these three different uses for the word love depending on the time period and in many ways the mythology behind it right all these stories help you understand that very complex yeah. human emotion and set of emotions yeah. it's also uh, like i really liked how he would go into and i forget if this was in that chapter or earlier in the book but where he was talking about how marriage is bringing the two into the one and it was really interesting because there was an episode on Tim Ferriss' show recently where he was talking about, and he, he even prefaced it with like, I know this sounds weird, but the question was basically like, what do you look for when you're looking to date somebody, right? And he said the best heuristic he's found is to know if you're a guy, how far you are on the quote unquote masculine scale. Do you have certain feminine qualities? Are you the masculine of the masculine guys? Yeah. And then same thing with females. And then you look for somebody on the scale, kind of on the opposite side of the scale as you like. So if you're all the way on the masculine side, you look for someone who's like super, super, super feminine. 
and this is obviously for you know i'm assuming for hetero relationships right so yeah. well so, actually it could yeah it could be for uh, homosexual relationships as well but well, I, have you seen this like dials for sexuality i can't remember no, who it was it was a pretty interesting psych paper so i read like so not like a spectrum type of thing like more of a not a clear linear spectrum because okay. obviously you can have someone who's very masculine in like protection of their significant other but yeah. they could also be very feminine in their relationship with children and so, so it's not quite like a single trait exactly yeah. it's, it's something like 11 dimensions mm of personality that have a feminine masculine spectrum. Hopefully we can find it and put it in the show notes, but I think that plays in well here too. And I think there's value to that in this idea that you have to find somebody who compliments you. Uh, have you read, and this, I hate the title of this book whenever I mention it, but it has some good stuff around this, The Way of the Superior Man. No, I haven't. Okay, so <laughs> I'd say like a Nat is sending me a subtle or not so subtle <laughs> message right now. <laughs> okay, so it's it's a very interesting book and in how it talks about this stuff in terms of male female relationships and the dynamic of masculine feminine energy. And actually, I should say where it talks about the relationship of masculine feminine energy because the same can be true of homosexual couples as well. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I thought that was very helpful for thinking about it in my own relationships too. And it's also helpful. And we're getting like way off topic here, but <laughs> that's. <laughs> podcast for right? it's also helpful <laughs> for understanding communication failures because i think a lot of communication failures in relationships some of it comes from one person arguing from a masculine position one person arguing from a feminine position and then bringing it back to campbell one of the things he talks about here with that two coming into the one yep. and he says you're never sacrificing for the other person yeah, you're sacrificing for idea. the relationship yep. and that i'm sure you've heard this too that's probably the best relationship advice yeah. i've ever gotten is that you're never fighting with the other person. You're working together to solve the problem. Yeah. And when you start thinking of it as this bigger entity than yourself, it really changes how you I mean, think about like, the whole that dynamic. Applies, that's like, that applies to both romantic relationships and any relationship, business really. Stuff, business really. stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, it's very helpful. Yeah. Or with like family, even, or like, I mean, there's yeah. so much that you could apply that concept to. I feel like that's almost somewhat similar to a Jocko concept. I think this is an extreme ownership, or if it wasn't, it was on the podcast. One of the two places where I get my Jocko fix. Jocko willing for anyone not yeah. familiar. Yeah. <laughs> but he was talking about how you want to basically assume or point out to the other person that you're going after the same objective. So mm -hmm. if you have a disagreement on tactics, right. but you probably are, you're definitely in agreement on the end goal. So in a relationship context, you know, your goal is to improve the relationship or keep the relationship solid. You just disagree about taking out the trash or something like yeah, exactly. something silly right and when you bring it down to that level it makes it much more uh much easier to kind of find an agreement because you both have agreed that you're already going after the same thing right. it's just we're disagreeing over how to get there and then that's a much better place than oh we're coming from two different angles and we completely disagree it's and like you're starting from the agreement and then solving the disagreement instead of the other way around Oh, definitely. And it helps preventing it from spiraling into some completely unrelated whatever issue. And I mean, I just, I don't know, there's something really nice about that idea of the relationships that that bigger whole. And he mentions it with the yin and yang too. Mm. It's that there is this combination of these two things that are very different, but each has a bit of the other yes. within it, yeah. right? With the yeah. eye, but then together it is this greater symbol. And all of that symbology that he discusses for not just relationships, but for everything in this book, I don't know. I mean, going back to why I guess this book was so interesting was how it makes you think about these symbols in such a deeper and way. And these symbols are everywhere. Oh, everywhere. And it's like, you just think, oh, those are the 
the yin and yang symbols. And like, I don't know, until I got really into mythology, like I had no idea what those meant or what the significance was at all. And it's crazy too, because it really gives you a different appreciation for religion. And he's got this whole section on it, which we'll kind of hop back to now, which is really about that internal development and how the hero's journey applies to your own life and how all of this mythology becomes like a struggle or inward path. And he spends a lot of this talking about religion because it's really interesting. That's where a lot of these myths come from, right? Or religious texts or... Well, that's where a lot of people hear about them. Yes. I think they didn't start as religion, which is kind of his whole point is that there's this difference between mythology and religion. Mm -hmm. And I love this analogy where he says mythology is like poetry and religion is prose, right? Mythology is more artistic and up for interpretation and you find your own meaning in it. And then religion takes many of those same stories and creates hard and fast rules about them. So if you take theology versus the the theology versus the mythology, exactly. So if you take something like will be a good example here. Almost anything from the the New Testament, for example, that's yeah. taken literally. Exactly. His Campbell's argument at least is that nothing in there is meant to be taken literally, right? Yeah. Like Jesus did not walk on water, but it conveys, you know, this greater story about yeah what kind of an impact you could have and the power of acknowledging the God within you, right? Yeah. This is a big thing for him yeah. is it's not about an external religion. It's all about it's bringing the stories back into you. you. It's a metaphor for you. They're talking about you. And when you're reading the Bible or you're reading any kind of mythological text or yeah. religious text, it's about you. You and your internal struggle and yeah. your internal development. Yeah. And then when you think about all of that stuff being part of your life or something in your environment, as opposed to this like external thing that you have to worship. Yeah. That's where he's really arguing a lot of the value in these stories come from. And especially how they all repeat throughout history. That was the coolest thing. Yeah. In regardless of where in the world it was, there seemed to be many common themes. Right. We were talking about the flood story before. Yeah. And I think that's a cool one because on the one hand, every religion, even ones that really had no connection with each other, seemed to have this flood myth. And so it's reasonable to believe that there probably was some massive flood at some point in human oral history, right? And I think there's some theories that it would be about 12,000 years ago now when that ice age ended and some of the sheet ice could have like rapidly melted and flooded a big part of the earth. Yeah. I mean, if floods happen, like look at Texas right now. I mean, Texas is like, I mean, floods are devastating. But I'm talking like pretty big, relatively global flood, right? Because even in Plato's Republic, he talks about a global flood wiping out Atlantis. And there's actually a theory that there was maybe an area that was wiped out by this big flood. And that same idea has been repeated in all these myths. But then you were talking about the flood as like an internal representation. And I didn't come up with this concept this is again jordan (laughs) peterson's amazing biblical series uh i think it's on youtube as well as as his podcast but he talks about things more explicitly as metaphors i think than even joseph campbell does but when he's talking about the flood he's referring to basically the flood as being sort of any disaster that befalls you or a society and he views it um kind of as a two-part problem right so one part is this natural disaster that happens. Life is chaotic. Things happen. We could all get hit by an asteroid tomorrow. Like there's things that are totally outside of human control. But the other half of it, which is what, uh, I mean, if we specifically talk about the Noah story for a second, the Noah story is, and this is in Jordan Peterson's words, like showing that somebody who's walking with God, aka doing all the right things is how he's interpreting that, is much more prepared for that kind of a disaster and can wait it out. Whereas people who are not are going to perish. So in his estimate, he uses Katrina as an example, right? Katrina was a horrible storm and like 
you know, whether or not it was caused by humans, like with climate change, that's a different story, but it was a natural disaster, just like Harvey was. And where Katrina, I think is a better example than Harvey even, but for Katrina, the levees broke and there was a lot of human mismanagement of even the evacuation. And that's what caused it to be such a big disaster. It wasn't just the storm. The storm was horrible, but the humans made it worse. And some humans made it better. Some humans made it better as well. And then they might have come out of it. Okay. But basically, Jordan Peterson's point or any of these flood myths, if you think about them as metaphors, are that the flood is always on the horizon, like something is coming. And that's why you need to always be prepared. And I'm using air quotes that you guys can't see, but um, <laughs> but walking with God, right? Which is doing the right things. Well, I've heard that or similar explanations for the heaven and hell analogies too, where in the very literal interpretation of these stories, when you die, you will go to one of these two places. But a more metaphorical, mythological interpretation would be when you are living a certain way, you are in heaven. Or when you are living a certain way, you are in hell or you are on the way to hell. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense where if you're spending your days cheating and eating like a slob and lying to people and whoring around or whatever, you're going to be in a personal hell. That is not fun. Anybody who's spent like a weekend binge drinking in Vegas partying. <laughs> exactly in Vegas like they they know you don't feel good at the end of no. it right but if you're living you know in ways that would be broadly considered holy right treating others as they would be treated being nice to people helping take care of the poor and the sick you're yeah. going to feel good right yeah. you're going to be in that sort of personal heavenly state and so as metaphors and myths they become really useful and really practical. I just think it's interesting how he says that when you get stuck in them as facts, then you get into trouble. And that's when wars start over like disagreements (laughs) over like, uh, you know, small religious differences. Exactly. And that's sort of the shame, I think, and where religion can get a really bad rep to some people is if you take it really at the metaphorical story level, right, regardless of if you believe in the specific facts of it, it can do amazing things for people. It can help with behaving or it can help you like know how to act in life. And it can be really useful personally. But then when it becomes a controlling others or telling others what to do, that's where Campbell's saying you get into trouble. And I thought that was a really interesting distinction. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like I was never religious growing up and have would not consider myself a religious person. But it's like ever since kind of going down this rabbit hole, I feel myself becoming more religious. And not to any particular religion. That's the thing that's like wild about it, right? It's like I'm taking bits and pieces from different places that connect with me. And I think he does talk about this in the book of like you kind of almost are making your own personal religion, right? But yeah, were you religious growing up or? No, not not really. really. Yeah, I always used to view it as almost like growing up, I was definitely would say an atheist. Like I was like, there's no bearded man up there who cares about us. Like we're such minuscule little specks (laughs) on this one planet of many, like... Yeah, but I think like the metaphor side has really connected with me. Exactly. I think it's easy to think about religion in particular in this black and white way where you say, you know, you either believe 100% in all of this stuff. And to be fair, there are people on both sides who believe that, right? There's a lot of, I think, really, I mean, especially we've seen this issue with Islam, right? Mm -hmm. Where there are certain people who believe 100% entirely in it. And that's obviously created some problems. But you can be in between. Right. And I think a lot of religions have done a great job of this, of saying, okay, Genesis isn't 100% correct, but there are still great lessons in here for people. And as long as you can make that distinction, then it becomes a really useful thing. It becomes powerful. Yeah. 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 
on that note of these external stories being internal or like turning them to your internal advantage. He talks a lot about bliss and this personal happiness, personal fulfillment. We probably call it self-actualization or something. And uh, we actually read this quotation that he opens up this chapter with. If you follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you are living. Wherever you are, if you are following your bliss, you are enjoying that refreshment, that life within you all the time. And I think where he's taking with a lot of these myth examples is that so many of them come back to finding that bliss Mm -hmm. either through avoiding temptation and pain especially when we think of a lot of the greek myths right you know pandora's box right if you do the thing you know you're not supposed to do it will unleash hell upon the world or probably not going to be quite that bad or on you (laughs) exactly it's going to be on you right and so you have to resist temptation or you know what would be a good one for, you know, you just have to like persevere through or like, I guess the odyssey, right? Yeah. Sort of the whole idea is that you're spending 10 years trying to get back home, trying to find that bliss again, but you have to push through all of that challenge right. in order to get and all there. the obstacles and all the monsters that are yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. Ogres and giants yep. and sirens. And he says specifically that sometimes you can be following your bliss and it's like you're being helped by hidden hands. Yeah that there's something in the universe helping you pursue what is right for you. And when you get off of it, it feels wrong. It's kind of like, have you read The Alchemist? Oh, yeah. One of my favorite books. Yeah. So it's exactly right. It's like the universe conspires to help you. And, you know, we're not like getting into the secret here. Yeah. (laughs) But in a certain way, and I think, again, it goes back to that internal sense where these stories help you to realize, am I on that right path? And also tell yourself, no, you're actually off of it. It's kind of like Steve Jobs' question, right? When you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, is this what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Questions like that, either from speeches or stories, are helpful. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's playing on the same themes. But I honestly think with our generation, people who kind of, I'm 26, you're 24, right? So people kind of in our sort of age group, millennials, I hate using that word. (laughs) But uh, I think the problem is less of some people are maybe on the wrong path and can find the right path. I think a lot of people are just not on a path. Right. And I think that was something I was writing about recently with the optionality trap. But I think it's very easy to not get on a path. So it's very easy to optimize to get more options. And I think in the same way as like this follow your bliss idea of knowing if you're on the wrong path or not, in the same way you can use it to find a path. Actually, there was Andy Dunn, founder of Bonobos, wrote a blog post. uh, I think it was a few years ago, honestly, but I found it recently and it really connected with me when he was talking about whether or not to kind of take a VC job after business school. And, you know, he had a ton of debt and all this stuff, but Bonobos was really promising and he was deciding what to do. And all his closest mentors and stuff told him to take the VC job. It was paying really well and it was looked really good. But he was kind of thinking like, this just doesn't kind of feel right and not following his bliss. So he did follow his bliss, did that. And he was just saying like kind of the exact same thing you said, where the universe conspires in your favor when you're on the right path. And again, it's not the secret or anything. Like I don't want to go down that route, but there's something there. There's something there. And maybe it's that you're just happier and that conveys itself when you speak to other people and good things happen because of that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of factors. Yeah, but there's something to that idea. Yeah, and I think part of it too, I'm sure, is just sort of a confirmation bias and a seeking where when you know you're on a path that you're excited about, you notice opportunities for it better. Uh, It's also when you're on a path because of cognitive dissonance, it's hard to not like the path you're on because you chose a path. That too. You're committed to it. You chose a path. And going back to what you were saying about people not picking a path and sticking to options. 
it is dangerous. It's like a trap that you can really easily get stuck in. That was one of my things that I didn't like about the digital nomad life yeah. where it was, you know, I kind of got the freedom to travel wherever and whenever I wanted and work from wherever. And almost immediately, probably took two or three months. I was like, you know what? This isn't better right. than <laughs> like picking a place and committing cooler. to it. It like, sounds cooler it sounds when you talk cool. to your friends who are in consulting or banking. You're like, <laughs> you're like oh, yeah, I'm working I can... from you know, Argentina yeah, or something. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it sounds better. <laughs> but there, there is that element of like, you need to be on a journey. Yeah. And we keep coming back to the hero's journey mythology, but it's such a big part of the book and what he's talking about here. Yeah. But that to be on the hero's journey, you have to be on a journey, exactly. right? Yeah. Like if you're just looking for the start point all the time, you're never you getting anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I mean, there's really something to that. And like you were saying with Andy Dunn for Bonobos, when you're on it, the satisfaction of working on that stuff yeah. is so high that to someone who is purely optimizing for income yeah. or options, it's very difficult to explain it. Joseph Campbell actually had a quote that's somewhat related to that, which is, so someone was asking him if they think they can be a writer or if Joseph Campbell thinks that, you know, they can be a writer. And his response was, oh, I don't know. Can you endure 10 years of disappointment with nobody responding to you? Or are you thinking that you're going to write a bestseller the first crack? If you have the guts to stay with the thing you really want, no matter what happens, well, go ahead. It's if you can kind of go with no success for 10 years and still enjoy it and it's still going to be fun, then that's you found your bliss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's the whole thing. name of this chapter is sacrifice and yeah. bliss. They go hand in hand. Well, and I think actually sacrifice. So that goes back, at, in my opinion, to the optionality trap. Okay. That's what I read into it. You know, I think like in a lot of the ancient sacrifice stories, right, they, they sound very barbaric. Like you're either sacrificing a human or an animal or sacrificing something. But I think in my opinion, at least if you read it as a metaphor, I read it as almost the opportunity cost of doing something. So when you pick a path, you're sacrificing all the other paths that were open to you, right? So if your choices were go into this high paying bank or, you know, like Andy Dunn's example, right? Yeah. VC or startup. By choosing startup, he is literally sacrificing his high paying VC job. That's a sacrifice. And then when you make that sacrifice, there's something about doing that sacrifice, like legitimately doing that sacrifice, like throwing away that path that... I don't know if it triggers some circuitry in your brain or whatever it is, but you take your new path very, very seriously because you're like, well, I gave up that to do this. So I'm on this path now. It goes back to some of the puberty rights we were talking about before, yeah. where you're making that sacrifice in your experience yeah. to become a man, usually in that case. And Campbell gives that example of why gangs and oh, he yes. doesn't mention fraternities, but I throw them in there, too. But yeah. the reason those kinds of organizations are attractive and the reason they retain their members is that becoming a member is so arduous. Yeah, there's a process. There's, there's a process. A, there's uh -huh. a hazing. There's something that you have to go through. And so you have to sacrifice. And then there's a dual effect there where the sacrifice itself, I think, leads to bliss. But then also because you've sacrificed, there'll be that cognitive dissonance mm, yeah. that creates more of the bliss. Yep. Right. Yep. You've it's made worse. it into the in-group or it's whatever it is. And yep. then you're telling yourself, well, I wouldn't have gone through all of that work and like not enjoyed it. Right. Yeah. So it must yep. be worth it. Yep. And so those two just go so hand in hand. And I think it's also part of why people who 
end up with no creative outlet, but unlimited free time and money end up depressed. Mm. And you see this all the time, right? Your, your multiple is more likely to die the year after you retire than the year before. And a big part of the theory behind that is that you no longer have a purpose, right? And so you feel like you're allowed to die, right? Retiring is one of like the worst things you can do for your health because you lose that, you know, the Japanese would call it ikigai, yeah. that reason for being. Reason to live, yeah. And in this case, I think you would say that for you to have that bliss in your life, you need the sacrifice. You need to be like doing the work in order to really enjoy it. Tony Shea, who started oh, Zappos, yeah. he talks about that in his book where he sold it and then he, or it wasn't, it wasn't Zappos. It was the company before Zappos. Okay. It was some sort of internet marketplace. Yeah, I can't remember really exactly what it was. Yeah. And yeah. he sold it for something like $90 million yeah. and he got the first 45 right away. And then the second 45 vested over a year. Not, right? And then he was there for a few weeks and then said, I can't do this and just left and yeah. let them keep the 45 million. Yeah. Cause to him, you know, he wasn't happy unless right. he was working on something he cared about. Yeah. And once it wasn't his, he didn't care about it anymore. Right. You need that sacrifice to have. The bliss, yeah, right. Yeah. I think, like, and it's no fun if you just win something, right, right. without any work. <laughs> yeah, like uh, exactly. The fun is in the work. A lot of fun's time. in the work. Yeah. Exactly. Do you ever watch Twilight Zone? Yeah, yeah. yeah Have yeah. you seen that episode with the gambler uh, mugger who gets shot in the alley? Mm-mm. Oh wait, I think I oh, wait, talk. Tell me about it. So I it basically, like it. the episode opens with this guy mugging someone and running down an alley. Okay. And as he's running down the alley, the police catch him and they shoot him because he like holds up a gun or something. So they shoot him and he dies. And then when he wakes up, he's in this like beautiful white palace area and there's an angel there with him and. The guy's like, oh my God, like, you know, is this heaven, whatnot? And the angel's like, you can have whatever you want, anything. And so he's asking for uh, women and he wants to go to the casino and he wants to like drive fast cars. Oh, and he always wins. And he always casino. wins. And yeah. every girl he talks to wants to sleep with yeah. him and he wins yeah. everything in the casino and <laughs> the cops never catch him when he's doing all these heists. And so, but towards the end of the episode, he's getting worn he down, right? He yeah, realizes right. he's in hell, right? You Ru- ruined the punchline. <laughs> But yes, eventually he realizes he's in hell, right? Where it's like he's getting every single thing he wanted. There's no work anymore. And I don't know, like that itself is a great myth. It is. Where that you is. you can recognize that. Yeah. That if you just won every time with no effort, yep. you wouldn't be happy. Yeah, what would be the fun? What would be the fun? Yeah, yeah, you need sacrifice for the bliss. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, so let's say you're one of those people that hasn't found what their bliss is. Do you think there's a good way to kind of root around and try to find it? Or? I think he talks about that, actually. I know it's in here somewhere. It might be in the last chapter. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not very helpful. (laughs) But he basically says that, and I'm mostly quoting from the book here, but says, uh, when you follow your bliss, there's something inside you that knows when you're following it and knows when you fall off. If you deviate into the pursuit of money or fame or sex, you've lost your life. But if you stay with your passion, even if you don't get the money, you still have your bliss. So I think what he's saying is, you know what's motivating you to do something. And I think if you really dig in with some people on what they're doing, they'll admit that it's for money or fame or their parents told them to or prestige or power or whatnot. But at the same time, they know or the people who are following their bliss know it to a certain extent. I mean, it's definitely something where you know it when you feel it. I'm sure you felt it like, yeah, just everything just feels like it's in the right place. And it's I think it was in Mark Cuban's book. I want to say play to win. I could be wrong. Is that the one that's like, if I can do it, so can you? Or is that a different one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can see the cover in my head, but yeah, I think that's that's the name of it. But yeah, he said in his, I don't think he called it bliss, but I think he called it like, you know, you found what you want to do when uh, you forget to eat multiple meals or you're just kind of like going 
And yeah, he was saying there was like one day I think he was working and then he looked up and it was like 10 p.m. And he was like, wait, where where'd the day go, right? <laughs> like you just lose yourself in it. Yeah, it's like, you know it when you found it, but right. it's more like if you haven't found it, like any recommendations or, I mean, I have some ideas, but I'd love to hear what you, what well, you have to say. I would suggest everyone go listen to our episode Mastery, yeah. <laughs> where there's a whole section on this in the podcast. Yeah. Step one, for sure. Step, yeah, exactly. <laughs> go listen to the Mastery episode. Hopefully, if you Google Made You Think Podcast Mastery, you can find our show notes with the timestamps for when you should listen on the part of finding what you should be a master at. Oh, they're going to want to listen to the whole thing. Well, they should listen to the whole thing. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's a good starting point. I don't know. I mean, the things that I always hear, because this is a common topic where especially young people are trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And it's definitely not helpful. what we've talked about where there's this infantilization of young adults where their parents are telling them what to do, schools are telling them what to do. First time you're on your own is like after whatever round of school you've finished is, and unless you have a very set career path, like being a doctor or a lawyer or something, or even being a lawyer, you know, being a doctor is kind of the only thing I can point to where it's like, your path is kind of set after you're done with school. But even if you finish like your MBA and stuff, it's the world's open to you. Well, and so many people go to grad school because they don't know what else to do or they can't get a job when they graduate because they don't have skills. I mean, your podcast has like almost every guest (laughs) talking about something like this. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Nat chat. Uh, For those of you who don't know. (laughs) But no, I mean, I was talking to a few people about this where it's, you know, it's so hard to graduate and then realize that you don't have anything useful to contribute to a company. Mm-hmm. So you have to either hope to get a job. And we're going to talk about this more in an upcoming episode because there is this big shift going on yeah. from the idea of a job as something you have to a job being something you do. Yeah. Which is hilarious yeah. that it was never like that at I some know. point. Well, that, I know. Well, that, that's like yeah. the whole, I guess, like the <laughs> democracy, big yeah. company unions. All right. We'll save that for the sovereign yeah. individual episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, the things that I always hear around people rediscovering what their bliss might be, like childhood, right? That's a big one. You know, what did you love doing when you were a kid? Although, to be fair, I don't totally buy that one. Yeah, I think it can go beyond that. Yeah, because I hated writing when I was younger. And I never really got into reading a lot until senior year of high school. And that's literally all I do now is read and write. And did you read when you were a child and then stopped? Or was it like you didn't start even until you were senior in high school? You know, actually, now that you mention it, I did read a lot when I was very young yeah, and I probably stopped. I read a ton in elementary school yeah. and then I, I think in middle school it stopped being cool. Yeah, it was Maybe. like middle school or something Whatever it stopped it being cool. Yeah. Actually, you know what? It might have too been that in middle school, like Discmen came out. Oh, yeah. Stuff. <laughs> like I remember having, you know, where you and could for like, me, at least I think when you as well, like the Internet started becoming a, exactly, a exactly. real thing. Like it wasn't it wasn't what it was originally. I guess if we go back far enough, I remember in first grade there was a kind of a game where you would have like a little card and you get stars on the card for every book you finished. And if you filled out the card, you got some sort of prize and then you like leveled up to the next card. And I got so obsessed and I just like destroyed everybody in the class. That sounds like you. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like exactly. I bet we could do that to you now. And you would still be like, Where I think it was something like she ran out of different kinds of cards for leveling up because she didn't anticipate it or something. And so we had to like cycle back and I was just having a blast with it. So I guess I did like reading, but I think that's the one that I always hear is what did you really enjoy doing as yeah. a child? But obviously there are some things, I mean, even like computer programming, marketing, sales, you know, if you were the kid doing the lemonade stand and getting yeah. really into it, right, you're probably a little entrepreneurial, salesy. Yeah. What else have you heard besides like the look to your youth? Um so my advice would just be go like try a bunch of stuff or try something 
try doing something like I think there's something to this idea of like cognitive dissonance won't let you think that you made a bad decision. So if you get on a path and I don't count consulting as a path, right? Because it's too broad and there's too many options and you're too disconnected from the results. Well, and there's no such thing as being a consultant. Yes. You are a something, something consultant, consultant, right? right? True. Like you can be a marketing consultant. You can be a design consultant. No, no, no totally. Yeah. But I, I mean more in the context of a large consulting company. Well, you know, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm okay. saying that like, if you think that your thing is consulting, yes. right. that is not a thing. We're, yeah, because I think there's a lot of people who go to large consulting companies as almost an extension of school. Oh, it is 100%. Right. I mean, that's how they advertise it in school yeah, too, is exactly. that they say like, come work at PwC and figure out what you're interested in. Exactly, because that's you're right. gonna be exposed to a wide variety of things. And that companies. to me, I again, I'm just speaking from personal experience, yeah. that to me is almost the worst way of figuring out what you wanna do. Well, you get pigeonholed really quickly. And you're not picking anything either. They're picking for you. They're picking for you. And it's not really picking because there's always something on the horizon that's different. And it's not like you're going to get to start a company or like do design and then do programming and then do marketing. Or kind of like take the journey of any kind where you have have to have skin in the game if it's going to be your journey. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that like, I can only speak for myself, but I would have never thought four years ago, this came up in our interview on NatChat of like, I would have never thought I would be working in the childcare industry or the beauty industry. But like once I started in those industries, I found them to be fascinating. I still find them fascinating, but doing that at the exclusion of everything else to really dive into that particular industry, because if it was just one of many things that I was looking at, I mean, I would definitely not have connected with it. And then you're going to feel dissatisfied and you're going to always look at like what else is out there. Yeah, you've got to try a lot of stuff. I mean, if you had told me four years ago, right? If you told me four years ago that, hey. Four years ago, you were working on a clothing company. Yeah, exactly. I was working on a clothing startup, right? And if you said, hey, in four years, this company is going to be dead and your full-time job is going to be reading, writing, and like radio, right? Which is, I guess, what podcasting is, essentially radio, right? I'd be like, what? (laughs) But you kind of, yeah, you just have to go try this stuff, right? And then you stumble on something that you didn't know you liked. Exactly. Like you would never know until you start looking at it more closely. Like I would never know anything about the dynamics of the beauty industry mm. until I started working in it. Like, cause you would just never see that, especially as a guy. Like I don't even use most of the products. Right. And I mean, you don't use any of the products. You don't even use shampoo. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> like as a guy, I barely use any beauty products. And it's like the industry though, fascinates me. Like seeing yeah. how, where people buy the products, the, even just like the splits between brands and distributor and retailer. And like, it's, it's just fascinating to see. But you would never know that until you actually start working in it. Yeah, you just got to try it out. Yeah. So it's almost just like picking a path, even if that path's not the right path, will get you closer to finding the path that will work for you. And, and I mean, we're, we're way off from Campbell. We're <laughs> pulling, this is actually a great tangent to pull it back on. He talks about this too, in that even if it's not a clear hero's journey, there are all of these quote unquote heroes who have gone before us, who have carved out paths, and we can look to their paths for guidance for figuring these things out and that's part of the power of these grand mythologies but also these like smaller local stories or like just tales of people that you know right he opens up the hero's adventure chapter with this where he says furthermore we have not even to risk the adventure alone for the heroes of all time have gone before us the labyrinth is thoroughly known we have only to follow the thread of the hero path and where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a God and where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves where we have thought to travel outward. We will come to the center of our own existence and where we had thought to be alone. We will be with all the world. And I love this, right? 
where it's it's just so clear that by absorbing these stories and really understanding, especially the characters in them and the challenges and motivations, it helps you with all of your own paths, right? Yeah. Whatever journey you're choosing. And knowing that it doesn't have to be just one journey. You don't have to think of it as like, this is the journey only decision I'll ever make. There's going to be a lot of journeys. In yeah. there. <laughs> There's going to be different episodes within that. Yeah. However you want to think about that. Any decision you're making is not it's very hard. It's much easier to say that than to actually do it. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, any decision you're making is not like for life. Like I think people extrapolate way too much with everything, but particularly with career stuff, we're like, hmm, I don't want to be in the insert industry here forever. And that'll prevent you from doing anything because you'll just think about that because no industry to me at least sounds interesting enough to do forever. Especially if you word it like that. If you word it as forever, like that's not to say I won't do one industry for the rest of my life. But like when you tell me at 26, do you want to join this industry for the rest of your life? Or if I'm thinking about it that way, that's the number one way to make you run in the opposite direction. But to be fair, I think part of why that is fearful to you is that we have so much more modern mythology around people going out carving their own paths, yeah. moving between industries, right? We have all of these examples like Campbell's talking about here, yeah. where we can see people living in such different ways. And I think maybe what he would say here is that to really structure your life in a way that will help you follow your bliss, you need to absorb as many of these stories as mm -hmm. possible yeah. so that you know which journeys are not the ones that you want to be on. Yes. Because if you don't have those other examples. You might be stuck in analysis paralysis again, yeah. where or there's too many just, examples out there. You're just on the one journey your parents gave you yeah. or that oh. society gave yeah. you or yeah. that, you know, that one teacher gave you or that your boss gave you. And it's so easy to get trapped in that if you don't have that broader perspective, which is why these hero journeys are so powerful. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and he talks here too. I mean, I like how he keeps coming back to this notion of paying the price and the sacrifice where I think it comes up in almost every chapter that you just sort of have to accept that as part of the journey, there will be payment, right? Right, exactly. Right. Whether it's like, um, I don't know if it's like something athletic, like whether it's like, you know, putting in reps or like doing whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, there will be a price to it. Like you're sacrificing something at and it goes back to the opportunity cost idea, too. There's pain in whatever activity you are doing for sure, but there's also sacrifice in the sense that let's say somebody's trying to be in a professional football player or something. You're sacrificing potentially going out with your friends on a Friday night and for to go work out instead. Or like, you know, if you're trying to be an author, maybe you're gonna be writing instead of again going out or like, yeah, there's there's gonna be a like you're gonna be sacrificing something for whatever journey you're on. Well, and especially to reach the ultimate destination, exactly. the ultimate goal. Because there's this great line from the Quran that he quotes here where he says do you think that you shall enter the garden of bliss without such trials as came to those who passed before you? It's really tempting to see. Oh, yeah. Lifehacker.com. Exactly. Something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you knew where I was going with that. Yeah. Where it's like you, you, everyone, you know, and obviously we're guilty of this, too. If you see a hack or a shortcut or something, it's really tempting to try to take it. But ultimately, these you know, five techniques will exactly. trim 30 minutes off of your morning routine. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, you really think that Elon Musk is like optimizing his morning routine, right? Yeah, I mean, it's so tempting to try to take these little easy hacks, easy routes, but no, you know, you won't enter the garden of bliss unless you have suffered and sacrificed the way the people before you have. Obviously, some people will get lucky. You know, you bought Bitcoin at the right time, and that's great. But for most people, if you're on a certain path, you're going to have to put in the same amount of work as everyone before you. I would actually interject something slightly different there from the Bitcoin example. I don't think the bliss thing that they're talking about is a particular destination. I think it's the journey. That feeling on the journey 
that you get when you are truly striving for something with your soul, that's, in my opinion, at least, that's what the garden of bliss metaphor is for. It's not necessarily like, oh, I made a bunch of money on buying Bitcoin at the right time, unless maybe somebody put all their heart into researching that. Well, and, and to then, be fair, if you wrote out the ups and downs exactly, of Bitcoin, right. no, no, <laughs> that was the sacrifice. Yeah. I'm saying it doesn't mean it's not that, right? But it's like, if somebody just did it because like, oh, I bought it and then forgot about it. And then like, I wasn't really into it, but it just happened to blow up. Like, that's not, in my opinion, the garden of bliss. Because that's like the destination part instead of the journey part. And I think the journey is what's truly that blissful feeling. Um, And people tell you that too, whenever, you know, like someone will say, oh, it's like they sell their company for 50 million or something or 100 million or something like that. And it's not really the moment that they sell their company. That's the thing they'll look back on in 20 years. They look back on the actual time when they were working on it. Yeah, exactly. So it's a game where if you do find your bliss and you follow it, you can't lose. Yeah, that's because a good point. You, yeah, because you're not going for the destination. You're going for that journey. And that's totally up to you to yeah. go for that journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of what he was saying in that quotation earlier, too, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. as long as you're on the path, even if you don't get the money and the accolades, yeah. at least you still had the bliss and you can have yeah. that without it, right? But there's no shortcut to it without paying the price. Well, and the shortcuts don't have the price. Yes. So you don't get exactly. the bliss. And so they'll just sort of like feel like there's no life hack empty for success. Yeah. There's, there's no life hack for bliss, <laughs> except maybe ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> but then like the next day that's sucks. That's a different episode, Nat. That's different, a different okay. episode. <laughs> there's a trade-off there. <laughs> yeah. But, all right, well, moving on then. <laughs> uh, I think there's another interesting idea here, which in going back to the sacrifice and bliss is he says that you should love thine enemies because they are the instruments of your destiny where on the same note as sacrifice, right? You can have all these different kinds of conflicts, right? It's you versus society or you versus another person or you versus nature. And there really isn't going to be that struggle and growth without somebody to compete against or something to compete against the obstacle, right? Like you need that challenge. I mean, that's very stoic idea, it sounds oh, like, right? I mean, that's like... Uh, it's like Marcus Aurelius's whole thing, right? Yeah. Is that you, like, these challenges are good for you, right? Yeah. They're making you stronger. Or Seneca, and there's a whole episode about that. Exactly, yeah. You should check out the letters <laughs> from a stoic episode. Maybe we'll have to do meditation sometime. Yeah. Or we'll, we'll do a follow-up, like, all stoic episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there was a... I can't remember if this was a speech from the founder of Nike or Adidas. I think it was the founder of Nike, like, really early on, somebody... And this was when Adidas was first becoming big. And somebody asked him, you know, how do you feel about Adidas? They're coming into your market. They're stealing your market share. They're really competing closely with you. And the Nike founder says something like, I'm so grateful that they're here because we haven't had a good competitor until now. And now Nike is going to like be so much stronger and do so much better. There's really something to that. Oh, yeah, there really is. It's like when things are easy and you're not challenged, you get complacent so quickly, right? And it's so easy to stop growing. I think we talked about this briefly. I mean, part of the reason I like living in a high cost of living city is that it motivates me to like push myself harder and do more of, you know, whatever, right? You feel the urgency of like, you need to figure this shit out. Exactly. Way more when it's a high cost place. But it's, I mean, it's kind of like Robert Greene's death ground idea. Well, it's not his idea, but. What's the death ground idea? Uh, It's, um, and I'm definitely paraphrasing here, but the idea is basically where uh, when there was an invasion, commanders would burn their own ships. Mm-hmm. So there was no way out, right? It's basically you either succeed in the invasion or you die. It's a fascinating idea because it's like you activate a whole nother level of ability that you didn't know was possible <laughs> when it's like this has to work 
or you're going to die. And you, I mean, I, I don't want to say usually because there's so much survivorship bias and all this stuff that's out there, but you will push yourself to another level that you didn't know. And it's kind of like what you're talking about when you say the higher cost living situation. It's the exact same idea. You need those challenges to motivate you. Yeah. I mean, if you're a nomad and you're living in a place that's like 500 bucks a month total expenses and you're living like a king. Right. Like, well, that, that was my thing, right? I was living in Argentina and I literally didn't have to work. And I could just hang out and eat steak dinners at restaurants every night and like drink wine and all of this. And I I just had no motivation to do anything. Right. Right? (laughs) So I was like, okay, this kind of sucks. So I could see myself doing this for 10 years and then waking up and being like, oh shit, I'm in my mid thirties now. And I haven't gained any (laughs) skills since I was 24. I didn't last three months. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the there is that need for challenge. And I don't know if you get this too, but sometimes when I talk to my friends who are employed working at a company, they say, oh, if I had the freedom of working on my own and setting my own hours, I would just, you know, watch Netflix all day and hang out and goof off. And my reaction is always like, "Eh, you'd maybe do that for a week or two. And then you would realize just how unfulfilling that (laughs) is. And I, I think there is a I don't know what the right word for it is, but I think there's a lot of people who are effectively living a life like that, where even when they go to work and then come home or, or they're unemployed and they're spending their whole day like playing video games, watching TV, uh, sitting well, Video at games are a whole other thing. We should talk about that, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and then that leads to a, like a really deep depression uh, and like, you know, body aches and stuff from not moving around and then you get hooked on opioids, right? It's very destructive. And a lot of that kind of comes back to not having a challenge. You don't have this journey, this mythology pushing you forward, right? You don't have something you're striving against. Which is why you should be thankful for those things, right? When they happen, exactly. it's just like, that's what's pushing you forward. Because I I don't think it's like other people getting caught in those things. I think all of us are capable of getting caught in that negative oh, okay. cycle if we didn't have something pushing us, which is possible, right? It's we'll almost just, you have to seek it out. Yeah. It's one of the big criticisms of the idea of universal basic income is that we don't know what'll happen if we give people all of their basic living necessities covered. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges of in an AI world where potentially 80% of the population not only doesn't have to work, but won't be skilled enough to contribute meaningfully to the economy, right? You know, what do you do with them? And if you can't contribute meaningfully to the world, it's possible that you just kind of sink into a depression, even if all of your basic standards, you know, cost of living is maintained. So it's like a weird question, right? What do you do when you have no challenge left, right? I guess everyone has to find their own to seek out. Yeah. I also wonder what, um, again, I don't quite remember who said this, so I'll have to, we can look it up and put it in the show notes, but it was again on a Jordan Peterson podcast. He quoted this and it was someone saying that if you gave humans the perfect society, it would last for like not even a day and then they would destroy it because just to have something different happen. Uh, or if you gave humans utopia for a day, by the end of the day, they would have destroyed it because they want something different, something to happen, right? Yeah, and just like something to something. mix it up. Which would be very interesting to see what happens as this AI world gets created. It's like the Twilight Zone example, right? Yeah. You give people just everything yeah, they want. food comes out, whatever you need. Or like or WALL-E, right? <laughs> I yeah. think WALL-E is another good yeah. example of this, right? Everyone has all of their food and everything given to them and all of their, especially the entertainment right in front of them all the time. And yeah. what happens? They become so fat that their bones like atrophy and i mean to be fair we're kind of living in that world right now too where you can just sit at home and like be completely entertained with no challenge to be stimulated and it's not good for us in a lot of ways now what do you think about video games because i think and on one hand it's like a compliment to video game makers but it almost gives people the feeling that they are fulfilling these myths or going on the hero's journey when they might not necessarily be actually like in real life doing that but they are in video game so you get the feeling but you don't get the sort of maybe the external part of it. 
Well, I think we've talked about this a bit before, right? I used to be really addicted to video games. I don't think we've talked about this. Oh, no? Okay, I know so, that from listening to some of the other episodes. Yeah, I mentioned it a but, couple times yeah. in NatChat, but <laughs> I spent basically all of my free time, I'd say like sixth or seventh grade through freshman year of college playing video games. Okay, I didn't, I didn't really know how intense this was. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, I think like just on one game alone, Dota 2, I've probably got somewhere like 2,500 hours wow. in it, right? It's, it's a lot of time. <laughs> A lot of time. Um, and I've got at least that much, if not more, in like World of Warcraft and StarCraft and these other games, right? So it was like really bad, yeah. like how much I'd play this stuff. How did that make you feel, those games? And then two, how did you get out of that well, addiction yeah. of it? So it sounds reason. like an addiction. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The reason I think that I was so into it was that I really hated school and got no meaning from it okay. and didn't have like a meaningful, I guess I'd say now, challenge that I cared about outside of it. But this was a thing that made me feel like I was good at something and that I had a challenge and like, you know, goals to complete and like yeah. quests and oh, stuff. They do a great job of that. Oh yeah. And, they, and that's what they're designed to do. They keep you in it. Yeah. And so it really provided that. The only time or the only thing that broke me out of it was getting into entrepreneurial stuff. Because which is a game in itself, which is a game in itself. Right. <laughs> and it was like, that was so much fun and yeah. such a good challenge that it was able to distract me from the like video game challenge. And so I think that a lot of people use video games to like get some of that meaning kind of like the hero's journey stuff, right? Like yeah. RPGs are all based on you know, role-playing games. Journey, like- yeah. It's like a hero's journey. You know, you go and you save the princess and you slay the dragon and then you come home and they give you that satisfaction without having to leave. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not. It gives people meaning. Right. Like, yeah. But it's a bad thing if it replaces, you know, seeking any meaning in your own life. And yeah. I think it's easy to get into that trap. I definitely was never in, as much into video games as, as <laughs> you are. That's a whole other level. So it makes me almost embarrassed to say my own. But uh, I really like sports video games. And then especially like the franchise or GM modes. I just like I like the idea of building systems and like, you know, letting them kind of run and that kind of thing. So I felt like I was playing them a lot. Nowhere close to you, though. So now I feel bad (laughs) saying that I was playing a lot. But I always found that like winning in that almost took away my drive to win elsewhere. Like I'd feel really good at winning. And then it's like very rarely would I take a step back and be like, whoa, what did I actually win? It would be more just like, I feel good. I won. Like, you know, my team won the Super Bowl or my team won the NBA (laughs) championship. Like, it's great. But it's, you know, so you get the good feeling, but you don't necessarily get the... um, the sacrifice. Uh, yeah. It's not the same bliss. Yeah. yeah. It's not the same bliss. Yeah. Some bliss, but it's some not, bliss, but yeah, different. it's not the same. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting now because like obviously I still play like some games occasionally on my phone and stuff. Do. I do, yeah. But you're obviously still productive though. So Well, that's what I was gonna <laughs> say is that I actually use them as a signaling tool now where I know that if I'm being pulled into video games more and like downloading new ones on my phone, something isn't right in my professional life. This is such a nat thing to do oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I play games, but I use it as a signaling device. Well, that, it takes like a day or two for me to be like, all right, what is wrong that I need to get validation from no, this other thing? Like, right? No, it makes total sense. Like, it right. makes, It's a great strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think looking at them that way has been really helpful, at least for me. And yeah. I'm sure there are some people out there too, where yeah. if you th- start thinking about it as, you know, why do I need to get validation and satisfaction from this game as opposed to like from the real world, that's probably helpful. Interesting. All right, that was a nice tangent. It was a good tangent. But hey, video games, like they do an amazing job with the hero's journey, right? They do, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stories are the same too. Like not the same, but they're like based off of myths or they almost create their own myths as part of it. Or they're, they're using a lot of these same general narratives, right? You know, the one thing I thought was interesting that he didn't actually outline in these interviews, but he outlines it elsewhere is the actual structure of the hero's journey. Let me just look it up really quickly and we can mention it. So the hero starts in the ordinary world. 
The hero receives a call to adventure. They refuse the call. They meet with the mentor. And then they cross the threshold into the mythological world, right? They're leaving their their ordinary world. Then they meet with Tess, allies, and enemies. They approach to the innermost cave, and they go through the first major ordeal, or the major ordeal, rather. Then they get the reward, you know, seizing the sword or you know, whatever it is. They take the road back to the ordinary world, and then they have a sort of resurrection and rebirth in their ordinary yeah. world as this new heroic person. Yeah. And I just like, I love reading that structure and seeing how it applies to so many stories Seriously. that we know, like all of them. Yeah. Right. And Star Wars, you know, that's the one they keep going back to is perfectly modeled off of yeah. this, right? Especially the original three, you know, episodes four, five, and six. It's literally this to a T. Which, Which makes sense because yeah. were they, was it like a mentor relationship or a friends or? As I read it, Lucas used Campbell's work to make Star Wars and then they like became friends monster. after. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's not that he was not like consulting on the project I don't think or anything. So I could be wrong. I haven't like fact checked that really carefully, yeah. but that's what I understood. Interesting. So no, I, I mean, just that model is so interesting for understanding all of the stories and, you know, kind of in our own lives. I don't know where I was hearing this, but somebody on some podcast was saying that they like to think of themselves as in their own hero's journey in a sort of third person point of view way. So that when they're encountering challenging moment, they have to think of it as a character in a hero's journey. And it's yeah. like, what would the hero do here? And that is usually a good way to push yourself to do the thing that you know you should do, but don't want to do. And not make the wrong decision. Not make the wrong decision, yeah. right? It's like, oh, the hero wouldn't, you know, not pay for their Chipotle. The right. Hero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or like the hero wouldn't spend all day watching Game of Thrones instead of working on their yeah, book. Yeah, that's right? a, actually a really interesting way to think about it. It's, it's similar to the what would Jesus do, yeah. right? It's a very similar exactly. idea. It's like, what yeah. would this ideal mythological person do? And that helps inform your own decisions. Are you yeah. taking the mythology, bring it back into you? No, oh, that's actually a fascinating way to think about it. I've been trying to do more of that. It's like when you remember to do it, it's very helpful. Yeah, because everybody has those moments where you're like, oh, I don't feel like doing this hard, yeah. difficult thing today. Would the hero go to the gym? Yes. Yeah, okay. exactly. the hero would go to the gym. <laughs> would, would the, the hero eat that brownie? No. no. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he just slayed a monster. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a magical brownie for <laughs> <Yeah>. the witch. <laughs> uh. It's the temptation. The temptation, exactly. So I, I guess the section we could maybe wrap up with is this masks of he's eternity. Saying he's saying we've gone too long, Matt. No, I'm no, just like, kidding. We, we could kidding. do it. <laughs> <laughs> this one's not three hours yet, so hours yet. it's probably good. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but the last thing that I just thought was really interesting, and, and we've talked about this a bit, is this masks of eternity idea. And I think he talks about this too in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where these same stories and these same narratives just keep coming up time after time after time. And even the things that we think of as being like biblical tradition, biblical religion, those two are sort of repeated throughout yeah. history. And it's just so interesting in the sense of that notion where like history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme where it's tempting to say, you know, oh, like I'd rather read current events and I'd rather read the news and the latest business book and all of this stuff. But so many of these bigger, deeper themes repeat themselves throughout history and keep coming back. And if you really study and understand that like underlying foundational layer of life that's been being told for thousands of years, that is so much more valuable than the latest piece of 
news or gossip yeah. or whatnot. Uh, it's hard to go after. Or it's hard. It's to, hard like, to resist. It's hard to resist. Too, yeah. yeah, it's hard to resist the like tasty info well, bits. That's why they call it clickbait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> clickbait and stuff. But you know, just internalizing a few, I think, of these myths or these ideas is so yeah. valuable. And I think once you go down the rabbit hole, it's hard to stop. Almost, they're uh, really good. The old myths that, especially like the Greek and Roman stuff, yeah. they're really entertaining because. Yeah. Oh, well, I was thinking um, like Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. He talks about this a lot where he's saying like, imagine Herodotus, you know, the great historian. Are you listening to the Greek and Persian one right now? Uh, Yeah, I was. Yeah. So imagine him telling those stories around a fire, right? So obviously he's pumping it up a little bit, but a lot of these old traditions were oral traditions or these old myths were oral traditions. So they're like really entertaining and gripping and very exciting and fun to get through. And then you come out with this like clear, useful message you can take away. Like I loved in these interviews, uh, Campbell is just reciting off little myth after little myth. Yeah. He just knows them off the top of his head. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because they're so easy to remember. Right. right. There's like, something about their structure that just makes it like, I was trying to describe this to someone else the other day, but it's like, there's something about these myths that if you think about life almost as a map, like the interactions between people and the trajectory of your life as a map, there's something about these myths that maps very well to the topography of your life, right? And I think that's why it, it connects so much. And that's why it's so easy to remember, too, because you mm. see it everywhere. It's like not I'll just the story. Oh, keep spring it back up. Yeah, it's not yeah. just the story of like the of Adam and Eve. It's like the story that you see happen again and again, like the temptation or someone introducing a element of chaos into a stable situation. Right. Like there's something about it that you just it's reinforced and maybe it's somewhat tied to like just the fact that we're human. Like there's something about these myths that, you know, resonates with the way our brains work. Yeah. And probably been imprinted on us for thousands of years. Yeah. And it's like the ones that have lasted, right? It's yeah. sort of a Lindy rule thing. Yeah. The stories that have lasted for thousands of years, there's something deeper there where we yeah. can all immediately see it in our environment and keep ending up reflecting on it. So read some mythology, yeah. study a bit yeah. of mythology. I should probably do more of that. Yeah, I'm reading one right now that's, um, well, I'll find the name and put it in the, we can put it in the show notes, but uh, it's uh, basically a book of Native American myths. Oh. They're fascinating. I mean, it's also fascinating how similar they are in a lot of other ways, too. There's a flood myth. There's like, there's so many things that are similar. I mean, there are things that are locally relevant, like things around corn or buffalo. And, right. you know, so there are things that are locally relevant, but I think it's, and I know Campbell has a phrase for it, but like the overall theme is the same. It's just sort of the inflection is to the culture that they live in. Right. And this is like not a very well regarded topic in science, but it does kind of make you wonder if, okay, because there's two interpretations, right? Are these just sort of transcendent human stories that we all end up seeing in our lives and creating myths around, right? And where all these ancient societies ended up with the same story for the reasons that just with life back then you came upon these same things. Or was there actually some like original society like spread them and then we spread out from that? Because I mean, there was a certain point where humans were down like in the tens of thousands after like an ice age. Yeah, I remember there was something about that. Was it in Sapiens also? I think that was in Sapiens where you talked about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was in Sapiens, right? And so I think with stuff like this, it's interesting, right? It could go either way. Did an event happen to that smaller group? Or did these events happen to these that events, smaller group right. or something similar? 
that have since been like passed down to tradition for, you know, for then it would be like tens of thousands of years probably. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of an interesting thought too. I certainly do not know enough no, no. <laughs> about any of it to I mean, uh, hypothesize either way. If you but. do want to go down this rabbit hole, I don't know if it's in, it's not part of the biblical series, but it's something else on Jordan Peterson's podcast or YouTube channel, one of the two, where he's talking about the dominance hierarchy and how that's not really a uniquely human thing where it's basically almost every animal has a dominance hierarchy as well. And that a lot of the stories that humans tell are sort of the best way to play that dominance hierarchy, which would lead to your genes spreading to the next generation, oh. right? So like, yeah, you'll have to listen to his podcast or his, or his YouTube channel to actually see oh, yeah. the full story. But it's something about how like, there are ways to win a game through cheating or through like nefarious behavior. Mm -hmm. But then the sort of behavior of the hero is the optimal way to win all games uh, so that you are invited to future games. Because even if you engage in that nefarious behavior, yeah. it doesn't guarantee you're going to win the game. And then you're never going to get reinvited to another game, right? So you're going to lose in the, all the dominance hierarchies. Exactly. Kind of like you're labeled a cheat, right? Or a thief, or if you're, you know, society yeah. brands you as a murderer or something, right? Like, I mean, it kind of makes you short circuit your selfish biology, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. Because That's without exactly any morality myths you would probably just like cheat and steal and it would be like a very Hobbesian, you know, state of nature yeah. of war of all against all. And obviously we don't want that. Yeah. So <laughs> having some myths around, you know, what's good and bad and like why that's good and bad is yeah. really helpful. It's like, but it goes back to sapiens, right? Where yeah. he was saying how like, well, I don't know if, if he went well, the, into this. The cultures that shared those myths survived the longest. Survived. Exactly. Ah, yeah. Right. So it's like, there's something about like a, I don't want to say survival. It's basically survival of the fittest, right? Of like the cultures that had these myths. Like we don't know the ones that died out because right. they're, not here, they're not here, right? So like we don't know what the other myths were, yeah. but the ones that survived happened to be these. And you kind of see that in evolution too, where like certain traits, they co-evolve. They don't necessarily come from the same ancestor, like, you know, wings or something from different lineages or what's, is there, I'm sure there's other examples other than that. But yeah, but this idea that these traits just, they had a survival advantage doesn't necessarily mean they came from the same ancestors. So going back to these myths, because even though these myths are similar, they might just be the ones that survived instead of being that they all came from the same original culture or something. This is pure speculation. But no, yeah. no, no, but actually uh, Dawkins talks about that in The Selfish Gene oh, because there's a whole chapter on memes. And so he actually invented the term memes. And now it means wow. like silly pictures of yeah. Peppy the Frog. But when he invented it, it meant cultural ideas. So is it like Jung's idea? Of like the archetype? I'm not familiar with Jung, okay. um, but I guess similar where Dawkins was saying that, and I think he would substitute myths for memes as well, sort of in the context we're discussing it, okay. where there would be an evolution of memes, an evolution of ideas in different societies and the societies that had the dominant memes or the dominant mythologies would be the ones who went out. And you can apply a lot of the same thinking from biology and genetics to ideas, especially in a post Dunbar's number, like information spreading, you know, mythology based society. And you can see how certain memes would win out, right? Have you seen that? There was like a game theory contest where people could submit computer code for the prisoner's dilemma. Okay. No, I didn't see that. Yeah. So this was a study was done a while ago. I want to say in the nineties, 
But so the prisoner's dilemma for anyone who doesn't know is basically like you've got two guys who are in separate rooms and they've both been caught for a crime. If they both stay silent, they both get one year in jail. If they both accuse the other person of uh, committing the crime, they both get five years in jail. But if, say, me and Neil are doing it, if I accuse Neil and Neil stays silent, I get to go free and Neil gets 10 years. Whereas, you know, vice versa, if Neil accuses me, then he gets to go free and I get 10 years. So if you do the math, your best bet in any individual situation is to accuse the other one because you will either get zero or five versus one or 10, right? So you would think or that- Or zero or 10, right? No, or, no, 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 because if, if we collaborate, oh, we, get, yeah, we both yeah, get yeah, one. We, yeah. uh, so you would think that what makes the most sense from a game theory perspective is to always say the other person, or is to always say the other person did it, to never stay silent. But they had people submit computer code for doing the prisoner's dilemma in repeated trials. So the code would know that they were going to play the prisoner's dilemma with the same person an unknown number of times. And the code that won out was literally as simple as tit for tat. Which was, if you accused me, I'll accuse you. But we start by being cooperative. Oh, so interesting. As yeah. long as you're cooperative. It's a great negotiating strategy, too. Great negotiating strategy, yeah. It's like, we'll start friendly, but the second you screw me over, like I'll just start screwing you over, yep. too. Yep. And that one won out overall. Great foreign policy, too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just sort of an interesting idea of like, we can see how that kind of idea of morality, I think actually it feels very natural, or at least is what I think we're kind of brought up with to a certain degree. And that itself may have been a survival meme that propagated because it helped uh, that group of humans. I was listening to the Cain and Abel episode of the biblical series Mm -hmm. uh, earlier today, actually. And he was talking about the idea of how like the oldest son inherits the land and how that idea, like how did that even come up? Because it seems like, well, if you have multiple sons, you obviously want your genes to survive in all of them and you want them to have their own. So why would you pick the oldest one and then say the rest of them fend for themselves? And he was like, if you think about it, let's say you have eight sons, for example, and you own a parcel of land that can sustain your family, you would then have to divide up that one parcel of land that can sustain one family into eight pieces. And then imagine if each of those sons have eight sons, pretty soon you're all going to have like postage stamp sized (laughs) piece of land that you're all standing on and starving to death, right? So the theory is that maybe the societies that had this sort of male hereditary, I guess, land inheritance were the ones that didn't starve or something, or maybe had the least conflicts or something between siblings and when this was just known. If there were clear rules, they won't start killing each other when their dad dies. Exactly. And so maybe because, again, he was talking about how it seems to be the case in many societies around the world that are not necessarily linked, right? Or you wouldn't immediately think of them as linked. Yeah. Or it just seems to be a survival strategy that maybe one war of survival of the fittest. Yeah, it's this is an interesting tangent. I know, yeah. Well, I, I just, <laughs> the, the mythology stuff is so interesting, but I feel like, I don't know, any other last thoughts you think we should throw in here before we wrap up? Um, Yeah, I'd just say just go read some of the stories and look at things that you have already looked at, but from this view of it's a metaphor. You know, I mean, I'm not saying like people who are religious who believe things literally are wrong. We don't know, right? Like they could be right. But I'm just saying if you look at it, things from a, metaphorical standpoint you'll just see it from a totally different point of view and you'll probably see a lot of your own psyche reflected in it which is a really cool feeling like the first time you go through it you're just like whoa this is talking to me and if you're not religious right recognize that there is value in these myths yeah neither of us were right but it it does kind of make me want to go and read like the abrahamic texts and stuff i mean i read the gita the bhagavad gita and that's a beautiful book very stoic actually in a lot of ways very stoic right (laughs) and there's so many good lessons in it and i think 
especially Eastern religion and some of the older like pantheistic or polytheistic religions, there's not nearly the same kind of like, I am your God. You can only worship me. You must do this. It's much more stories. Right. And I think that for somebody who is very secular, trying to get into getting some of this mythology, some of those religions are probably a better place to start (laughs) because it's going to be a little less. I found like, um, I've only read one book by Alan Watts, but way of Zen was really interesting for me as well. Yeah. The Zen Buddhism stuff is really easy to get into. Right. Yeah. And he does a really good job because I think, you know, especially for people who come from Western societies like us, like he does a really good job of connecting the ideas to Western ideas. So the way of Zen. Yeah, it feels pretty relevant. And actually, there's one thing in the opening chapter, which almost seems like a Taleb chapter. Oh, yeah. Where he's talking about the difference between meaning and words and how certain things are abstractions. But then we forget that they're abstractions. Like we forget that words are really abstractions of ideas. Uh, And then we're essentially like compounding the difference between meaning and words over time. And we start to take the words too seriously. (laughs) Well, I I mean, the the power of words to confound meaning is really interesting topic. This is probably a subject for another podcast, but (laughs) if anybody listening hasn't read words that work by Frank Luntz, Oh, I have it. Oh, okay. You got to read this book. So whether or not you agree with his politics, he's the guy who came up with terms like death panels. And I'm not sure if he came up with the pro-choice, pro-life delineation, or if he just talks about it. Yeah, because it's like, who decides these terminologies that we start using to describe these? That that was his job for a few of the, a couple of the Republican presidents and some of the Republican, like, runners for president, where he basically helped them craft their language to evoke certain feelings. Yeah, or like traditional marriage versus like... Traditional marriage, exactly, right? Who doesn't support that idea? Yeah, it's (laughs) like, oh, you're not pro-choice, then you like, you don't think women should have right it's like oh you're not pro-life then you like think we should kill babies right it's like it's so hard to disagree with either of those terms on their own so like that subject is just fascinating of how you can just use words to warp people's interpretation of something maybe we should do an episode on that sometime yeah it could be kind of cool that's an interesting one yeah Yeah, i'd be down i haven't read that (laughs) book either so but anyway Power of Myth, Joseph Campbell. It's a short read, too. It is a short read. It's yeah, uh, get pretty, pretty quick. Quickly. Yeah. And it's cool, too, if you like podcasts, which we assume you do, because you kind of read it like a conversation in your head. Yeah. And so it flows very quickly. It would have been a great podcast episode. Uh, I would have loved to listen to all <laughs> yeah. of that. I'm sure somebody has those recordings. Oh, yeah. They should just yeah. release it as a standalone podcast yeah. series. If it's on YouTube, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. We'll link to it because they could do like a serial type thing where they release it, you know, interview by interview or something. Joseph Campbell has a lot of books, too. And then there's books by his students. So there's a book that I've read. I've only read two books by just or I've read three, but the two ones that I would recommend are this one, Power of Myth. And then there's another one called The Joseph Campbell Companion. And that one is basically these like a collection of essays and speeches that he gave privately to groups of students. It's fascinating. It's even more readable than this. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting. It's kind of like a good overview of many of the ideas he talks about in Power of Myth, but in a bit more detail. And he's like, he's teaching it, right? He's teaching it. Exactly. So it's meant to be like for people who don't quite understand and then trying to get them towards more understanding. Yeah, he's, I mean, I looked on his Amazon page, like the number of books that that guy wrote is incredible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we'll, we'll link to everything mentioned in the show notes. Go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Anything else that we need to mention before we head off? Besides leaving a review if you're enjoying the podcast <laughs> and uh, telling your friends. Yeah, exactly. I think those are the... And be sure to check back in next week where, assuming that the schedule that I have in front of me sticks, we should be talking about cryptocurrency with two of our close friends. So a subject that I am a complete novice in. So <laughs> just given the disclaimer right now. But that, that will be really exciting. And that's how we're structuring it is that Neil 
Neil is sort of going to play the novice and then our two friends. Not playing, I am. You are, yeah. <laughs> There's no acting involved. <laughs> uh, our, our two friends are like much deeper in the space. They'll be able to explain everything that you may be interested in in the whole cryptocurrency world. So that should be a lot of fun. If you haven't listened to our existing episodes on Anti-Fragile, Letters from a Stoic, and Mastery, definitely go check those out. And yeah. I think that's all. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think on uh, Twitter. And Yeah, that's right. I'm at Natty Lyason, N-A-T-E-L-I-A-S-O-N. And I'm at The Real Neil S. And yeah, we'll see you guys next time. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But... As always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.